I've been told that one is the loneliest number. I also know that one is a very important number. So today I begin by asking, who's your one? Who is one person in your life that you're close to who's not close to God? I encourage you to look at your family and your network of friends, your classmates, your teammates, your coworkers, your neighbors. Who do you know who doesn't know God? Who are you close to who's not close to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not encouraging you to be judgmental. I'm reminding you that we are to be fruit inspectors. Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. So who is in your life that does not produce the fruit of repentance? Who is your one? This past week, I heard Johnny Hunt from the North American Mission Board, and he said that 80% of Southern Baptists have never led anyone to the Lord. They've never led a son or a daughter, a friend or a family member, never met a neighbor or a stranger, never led them to the Lord. Let that sink in. Four out of every five Southern Baptists have never led anybody personally to the Lord Jesus Christ. We boast a population of 15 million people in our denomination. Statistically, it takes 57 Southern Baptists to win one person to Christ. That ratio is woefully pathetic. It takes 57 Southern Baptists to bring one person to a saving knowledge of the Lord, bringing them to the waters of baptism. Our baptisms as a denomination are at a 74-year low. Now, I'm talking about numbers that are pre-COVID. I'm not speaking just of last year. But the last numbers that we have from 2019 represent a 74-year low among our denomination. There was a time when we kept the main thing the main thing. But now, I think that we have put the main thing on the back burner. That we don't intentionally look for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. And some of those people in the lost and dying world we call family and friends and neighbors and co-workers. So today I ask you, who's your one? This morning we embark on a two-month journey. This is a seven-part sermon series. And along the way we are going to take a look at one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with various people in his ministry. After Easter... We're going to give you an evangelistic tool called Three Circles. It's just a mechanism, it's just a tool that you might employ and use as you share the gospel with a lost and dying friend. I want to encourage you to join me in asking the Father for 65 baptisms this year. You say, Pastor, where do you get the number 65? Well, I've just done a little bit of research over the last uh, decade to decade and a half here at First Baptist Pelham, and over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've never had a year where there were 65 baptisms. And I'm just asking the Father, please, will you stir the water 65 times? And maybe that number's too low. And some of you may say, that's way too low. Well, that's great. Prove me wrong. But let's just be eager about sharing the gospel. And before we go out and share the gospel, we've got to identify who's our one. 
Identify that person. Pray for that person. Look for gospel opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. This morning, we're going to begin our conversation with a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take a turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. I want to read verses 16 and 18 in your hearing. I want to preach a sermon um, that is simply entitled, Nick at Night. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Heavenly Father, thank you for these sacred sentences of the Scripture. And Father, we pray that you will open them up unto our understanding today. Help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to obey. We ask all of this in the strong, matchless name of Jesus and all God's people declared, amen. You may be seated. In John 3.16, we discover God's passion. In John 3.17, we discover God's purpose. And in John 3.18, we discover God's plan. Let's take a deeper look at the passion of our Lord in John 3.16, we find some of the most familiar verses in all the Bible. These are verses and words that could be found on a bumper sticker, on a billboard, or at a ball game. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. This is God who is the maker of all things seen and unseen. This is God who flung the stars into space. This is God who spoke the world into existence. This is God who is unmatched and unparalleled in all the universe. God so loved. The word love is agape. It's God's love. It's unconditional, unmerited. It is unending. It is a love that originates from God and flows from God. For God so loved the world the word that's translated world is the word cosmos. That God loves everything that has been made. And the quintessential aspect of creation is humanity. Therefore, God loves mankind. God loves men, women, boys, and girls. There is nothing he's made that he does not love. He loves all the cosmos. And you are part of that cosmos. God loves you. God so loved the world. We should not be enamored with the breadth of God's love, but we should be overwhelmed with the depth of God's love. It should not astound us that God loves the world because the world is so big, but it should astound us that God loves the world because the world is so bad. It's overwhelming the reality that God loves the world. There's no good reason for God to love you. There is no good reason for God to love me. There is nothing intrinsic in us that is lovable. There is no good reason. There is nothing that demands God to love, to love us. There is nothing that obligates him to love us other than the fact that he just simply loves. Elsewhere, John will write that God is love. And God so loved you. 
God loves the world. Once again, we should not be overwhelmed because the world is so big, but the reality that the world is so bad. God loves this world. This world that frustrates you. This world that aggravates you. This world that gets on your ever-loving last nerve. It is this world that God loves. God loves this world. It's a world that's capable of walking into Norris Hall on the campus of Virginia Tech University in the cool morning of a spring day and have a student open fire. And when the smoke settles, some 32 individuals perish. And in John's gospel, Jesus said, God loves the world. God loves a world that is capable of entering First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, Texas, and a man began to go on a shooting spree, leaving in its wake 26 dead individuals and 20 others wounded. Yet here in John's gospel, Jesus said, God loves the world. God loves a world that is capable of killing and slaughtering millions of unborn babies merely out of convenience. Yet here in John's gospel, Jesus says God loves the world. God loves a world that is capable of being irritated during rush hour. It is capable of sexually assaulting a child. It is capable of being impatient to those that we say that we love the most. Yet here in John's gospel, Jesus said God loves the world. God loves this world in spite of our sin. God loves this world in spite of selfishness and anger and resentment and greed and lust. And I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about us. God loves us. And we are despicable. We are sinful. We are completely and utterly selfish. And yet in John's gospel, Jesus declares God loves the world. You and I should be overwhelmed. Not at the breadth of God's love, but at the depth of God's love. That God's love can reach down to the darkest depth of your soul and be sufficient for you. It's overwhelming, the love of God. His passion is like nothing else. And we are overwhelmed not because the world is so big and vast, but because the world is so bad and vile. And yet here in John 3, 16, we see God's passion. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The best way to show love is to give, to give of yourself, to give of your time, to give of your resources, to give of your talents. The best way we communicate love is by giving, and certainly God demonstrates that. That God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, when you hear that phrase, one and only son, your mind ought to race back to Genesis 22. It is there where the Lord says to Abraham, take your one and only son, Isaac, go on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Many of you know that story. And the son was spared on Mount Moriah. But it's reminiscent that the son will be slain on Mount Calvary. Abraham was willing to give up his one and only son, but God provided a ram caught in the thicket. But here in John 3, 16, we are reminded that God so loved the world that he literally, physically, visibly, bodily gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and for me. The son that was spared on Mount Calvary is reminiscent of the son that will be slain on Mount Calvary and Jesus died on the 
on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. The word perish means more than just a bodily death, but perish in the sense of being eternally separated from God. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the first of 17 occurrences of that phrase eternal life in John's gospel. This is the first time that that John pens these words, but it will not be the last. For in John's gospel, the word eternal life is found 17 times. And this is something that Nicodemus cannot understand. Jesus says this eternal life is found and bound in the fact that you must be born again. Nicodemus' story is told for us in the verses leading up to our passage. Nicodemus was Israel's teacher. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. To say that he was a Pharisee means that he was a preacher and a capable preacher. He knew the word of God and he knew how to communicate it accurately. In fact, Pharisees prided themselves on knowing God's word and knowing God's way and being able to tell people how to live uh, in an acceptable way before the Lord. Pharisees were known as the pure ones. They were the ones who were pure in morality. They were genuine in their authenticity of knowing the scripture and making it known. And Jesus says of Nicodemus, he is Israel's teacher. He's one of the best preachers that Israel has to offer. And this man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of night. In John's gospel, John usually communicates a double meaning, uh, not just what's on the surface, but also what's underneath This darkness not only described the night sky, but it also described the spiritual condition of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the first Nick at night. He came to Jesus under the cover of night, and he simply had this to say, we know that you are from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless they were sent from God. So in other words, Jesus, people have been talking about you behind your back. Us Pharisees, us religious people, the uh, religious establishment of the day, we have been watching you, looking at you, and we know that you do not go to one of our seminaries. You do not go through the natural course of education that, that we subject our people to, but Jesus, we cannot deny that you are from God because no one can do what you do unless they are sent from God. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus And simply says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born again? Nicodemus had never thought about being born again. He didn't even know the phrase. It was something that was not on his radar. What does Jesus mean by this concept of being born again? What is this? What is the meaning of it? What what is the purpose of it? And Nicodemus, who's a very astute man, he's a very educated man, he's a morally upright individual, yet he's going through his mind and he's thinking to himself, what does it mean to be born again? How can a man enter his mother's womb for a second time? Not only was that something that uh, was unfathomable, it was something that was downright gross. I mean, he thought to himself, how is this even physically possible? How is it possible for a grown man to be born again? I mean, how can a man who is now perhaps six foot two, 215 pounds, able to re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? That, that, that's impossible. He throws up his hand in despair. 
And not only would every man wonder, how is it possible to be born again? But there's not a mother in the crowd that'd be willing to do it a second time, right? I mean, he was painful enough the first time, and it was just 21 inches and about eight, ounce, eight pounds and four ounces. But now, a grown man, 6'2", 215 pounds perhaps, how is it possible for a man to be born again? Once again, Jesus is not speaking literally, he's speaking symbolically. He's saying to Nicodemus, you, you must be born again spiritually. I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to know the kingdom of God, if you want to be part of God's kingdom, if you want to see the kingdom of the Lord, then you must be born again. It's not an option. It's an imperative. It, it, it's a requirement. Everyone who enters the kingdom of God is born again. What does that mean? Well, to be born again implies you know yourself to be dead. You need to be born again. You are dead. Elsewhere, the apostle Paul will say that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. That, that we are spiritually stillborn. We are dead. To be born again implies that you know that you are dead. Dead to yourself, dead to the Lord. And you need to be born again. It's not that you just uh, need a few minor adjustments. It's not that you just need to be fine-tuned here and there. It's not that you just need some of your parts replaced. You know, some of the parts of your life that are bad need to be turned in so you can have some uh, replacement parts. No, it was D.A. Carson in his commentary on the Gospel of John who simply said, because... There is nothing in us not defective. We must be born again. Let me say that again. Because there is nothing in us not defective. In other words, everything about us is defective. Everything about us is messed up. Every thought, every word, every action, every attitude, every plan, every scheme, everything about us is completely and utterly touched and tainted by sin. We are completely messed up and we are still born before the Lord. And in order for us to enter God's kingdom, we must be born again. In other words, we must be recreated. We must be redone. We must be remade. It's not just that we just need a few uh, uh, adjustments here or there. No, we are completely and utterly sinful and we need for God to make us new again. For in Christ, we are a new creation. All things that are old are gone. Behold, all things become new. So we need to be born again. Once again, this is something that was so foreign to Nicodemus. And Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand this. And if you, as Israel's teacher, as you, as a, as a morally upright individual, you as one who is religiously righteous, and if you don't understand your need for salvation, how can anybody else? You are Israel's teacher. How can this be? Well, the way it is accomplished is because of God's passion. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, they may be born again. And it's imperative for you, for me, for anyone, in order for us to see the kingdom of heaven, we must be remade. We must be recreated. And that can only come 
through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. John 3.16 is God's passion. John 3.17 is God's purpose. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The reason God sent Jesus was not for condemnation. The reason God sent Jesus was for salvation. Typically, the Greek structure of a sentence begins with the verb followed by the subject followed by the object. If the author wants to emphasize a word, he will throw that word at the beginning of the sentence in front of the verb. And as you, the reader of the Greek text, as you come along and you find a word that's in front of the verb, you know it's there on purpose because in Greek there's no capacity to italicize, underline, or make something bold. So in order to emphasize something, the author just throws the word at the beginning of the sentence. The very first word of John 3.17 is the word translated no. No condemnation. Jesus was not sent to condemn. Jesus was sent to save. If God just wanted us to be condemned, all he had to do was do nothing. Because we were condemned already. If Jesus, if his purpose was to come for further condemnation, as if that's even possible, if he came to further condemn, then, then all he needed to do was not come at all. Because we're condemned already. The purpose of Jesus coming is not to make us feel worse. The purpose of Jesus coming is not to condemn us further. The reason Jesus came, the purpose of God sending Jesus was to bring about salvation, not condemnation. So we are to be saved. You ask the question, saved from what? And the answer could be twofold. We're to be saved from our sin. Listen, friend, our sin is an affront to a holy God. It is not only a slap across his face, it's a declaration of war. Our sin declares to a holy God, we want to be our God and we don't want to surrender to you. That's what sin declares. The sin of your life, the sin of my life, it, it, it all is about selfishness. It's all about the declaration that I'm in charge and God is not. And our sin is a declaration of war against God. And Jesus came to save us. From what? Save us from our sin. Save us from our selfishness. Save us from our inward bentness. Save us from our sin. And, 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 and as, as sinners, we deserve hell. And so Jesus came to save us from our sin. But I said it was twofold. Because even greater still, Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God. Because of your sin, because of my sin, we deserve God's holy hostility. We deserve to be punished for eternity. We deserve to stay and remain in our condemnation. Because of our sin, we are objects of wrath. That's how Paul describes us later in the New Testament. We are objects of God's wrath. We are not innately good. We are innately Selfish, sinful, and evil. And so Jesus came not to condemn us further, but to save us. Save us from our sin. Save us from the wrath of God. And everybody needs saving. To acknowledge that is to acknowledge that you're not God. To acknowledge that you need to be saved is the acknowledgement that I've got to surrender my pride. I've got to sacrifice it. I've got to lay it down. I'm, I'm, I'm stillborn before the Lord. I'm as good as dead. Jesus, I need for you to remake me. 
And I need for you to redo me. I need for you to recreate me. I need to be reborn. Because I acknowledge that I'm in need of Christ. Every person is in need of Christ. Every person. Everybody that you know needs a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the only way anybody can have a personal relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. Are you saying, you may think to yourself, Pastor, are you saying that not all dogs go to heaven? I'm exactly saying not all dogs go to heaven. Pastor, are you saying that this uh, Christianity is the only religion recognized by God? Listen, I'm telling you that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And the only relationship that matters is your relationship with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of that, there is no shot, no hope for you to see the kingdom of God. It is only through explicit faith in Jesus. Every person needs a relationship with Jesus. I find it interesting that John gives us this story in John chapter 3 of Nicodemus. The very next chapter, he gives us the story of the immoral Samaritan woman found at the well. We'll get to her next week. But suffice it to say, it is very interesting to me. That John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he puts these two characters side by side in sacred script. And friend, you cannot get more polar opposite than Nicodemus and the immoral woman at the Samaritan well. For starters, one's a man, another's a woman. One's a Jew, the other's a Gentile. One is morally upright, the other is completely and utterly immoral. One knows the Bible, the other does not know the Bible. You cannot get more polar opposites. But regardless of where you find yourself on this spectrum, every person is in need of Jesus. Every person's in need of the gospel. Whether you're as morally upright and religious as Nicodemus or as immoral and vile and rebellious and far from God as a Samaritan woman at the well. Any place you find yourself, you're in need of Jesus because Jesus came for the purpose of salvation, not condemnation. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that's you and that's me. In John 3, 16, we see God's passion. John 3, 17, we find the purpose of why God sent Jesus to save. In John 3, 18, we find his plan. So the question is, how does a person go from being condemned to being saved? How is that even made possible? John 3, 18, whoever believes on him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Everything in this relationship between you and God hinges on faith. It hinges on belief. And in the New Testament, the words for faith and belief are synonyms. And everything in this relationship hinges on your trust, your faith, your belief in the person and work of Jesus. That's the plan. That's the only plan God has. That's plan A and there ain't no plan B because God doesn't need a plan B. This is the only way for sinners to be saved. They must believe. Whoever believes upon him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned because he's condemned already. 
because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Let's be very clear that a person goes to hell not because they reject the gospel. They go to hell because they're condemned already. If it was true that a person goes to hell because of rejection of the gospel, then the last thing we need to do is try to give people opportunity to receive the gospel. Because if it's rejection of the gospel, then one of the cruelest things we can do is to give them the opportunity to reject it. So if it's true that rejection of the gospel sends somebody to hell, then we need to stop all evangelistic opportunities. But we don't need to stop all of our evangelistic endeavors. Why? Because it's not the rejection of the gospel that sends somebody to hell. They go to hell because they're condemned already. The only way they go from hell to heaven is by explicit faith, believing in Jesus Christ. So we present the gospel because people are condemned already. We present the gospel because we share the passion of God in our life. Stop and think about your friends and family members and coworkers and classmates and teammates. They don't know the Lord. And if they don't know the Lord and they die today, they go to a very deserving place an eternity in hell. We don't want people to go there. There's nothing inside of us that wants anybody to go there. Not even our not even our, our, our greatest enemy. We don't want that person to go there. And especially the people that we love. The people like our family and our friends. We don't want them to be separated from God for all of eternity. We don't want that. And if we have a level of passion for people, it pales in comparison to God's passion for people. And so because God loves the people that you know, because God loves your family and your friends, because God loves the people that you work with and go to school with and play ball with, because God loves those people so much, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. And the way they receive that salvation is by explicit faith in the name of God's one and only son. It's not that they reject the gospel. No, they're condemned already. But the way they receive salvation is they believe, they trust. For John and for all the New Testament writers, to believe is not just mental affirmation. It is a life change. It is a life that believes. It is a life that trusts by attitude and action. It is apparent and obvious to all that we're gospel people, Jesus people. So we share the gospel because it's the only means of salvation. It's the only way that a lost person can be saved. And we're so convinced of this that we share the gospel. And there are some people who believe. And they go from death into life. What do they believe in? Well, Jesus said they believe in the name of God's one and only son. To believe in the name of Jesus. The word name, especially in the Bible. The word name carries essence, character, of that person and his work. So to believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in the person of Jesus, that he is the God-man, 
fully God, fully human, but also to believe in his work, what Jesus did, not just in the three years of ministry, but ultimately how it culminated at Calvary's Hill. Jesus died on the cross as your substitute and mine. The, the sin that you should pay for, he paid for. He died so that you might live. There's a sweet swap of salvation. We give God our sin and Jesus gives us his declared innocence. And so we believe in the accomplished work of Jesus. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. And that is, is the one event that causes our faith to rise and fall. Everything about Christianity rises and falls on the reality that Jesus died on the cross and on the third day he was raised from the dead. Everything hinges on that. For we believe in the name of God's one and only Son. This is what Jesus was calling Nicodemus to. He wanted Nicodemus to believe in the name of God's one and only son. To prove his point, he comes to the conclusion of the conversation. And he reminds Israel's teacher of a story tucked away in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Nicodemus knew the story well. And probably many of you know the story well. The Lord had liberated the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. Moses was their leader it didn't take them very long for the people to begin to grumble against God and complain against Moses. Moses, you're a loser, they said. You've brought us out to this desert to die. We had it better when we were slaves in Egypt. And because they grumbled and complained against God and against the anointed one, Moses, the Lord sent venomous snakes in the camp. If anybody was bitten by one of those poisonous snakes, they would die. The fatality rate of being snake bitten was 100%. Nobody survived. Everybody who was snake bitten died. I mean, those are worse odds than COVID. Can I get an amen? I mean, you might get COVID and most, if not many of you, uh, recover greatly. But in this story of Numbers 21, if you were bitten by one of these poisonous snakes, it was inevitable that you would die. It didn't take very many funerals for the Israelites to realize, you know what, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe God does know what he's doing, and maybe Moses isn't a loser. And so they went to Moses, and they said, please, will you go to God on our behalf and ask God to be merciful, to spare us? Moses said, I'll see what I can do. So he goes to God in prayer. And the Lord said to Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent. I want you to set it on a pole in the middle of camp. And anybody who looks to that bronze serpent who's been snake bitten, they'll be healed. The camp had one source and sign of life. They had to gaze upon the one lifted up in the middle of camp. And if they were snake bitten, and if they looked to the bronze serpent in faith... They would be healed. In Numbers chapter 21, it says that many people looked and were healed. I find that amazing. Many people looked. Why not all the stinking people looked? I mean, right? I mean, why not everybody? If that's the only way for anybody to be healed, why don't everybody look to the one lifted up? Because everybody was deserving of death. And the only way that they could be healed was to gaze upon the sole source of life. Jesus comes to the end of his conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, just as Moses lifted the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And anyone who looks to him will receive 
eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that everybody in this camp called earth is snake bitten. I mean, everybody, all of us are snake bitten. We are snake bitten by sin. And the end result of our sin, 100% fatality. If, if, if nothing happens with your sin, if you don't do anything with it, if you don't get any remedy for your righteousness, if, if it doesn't happen, then, then you will not only physically die, but you'll spiritually die, and you'll spend an eternity separated from God. And Jesus said, so God has provided one soul sign of life. You must look to the Son of Man who has been high and lifted up. And Jesus, you say, was not on a pole, but he was on a cross. And as he was hoisted into the air, he took the sin that he did not commit. He took the punishment that he did not deserve. Because you have a sin problem that you can't correct. You, me, all of our friends, all of our family, snake bitten by sin. And the only remedy is to look to the one lifted high. The only source of life, the only source of redemption, the only way that sick people can be made well, spiritually speaking, is by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he was lifted high on Calvary's cross. And he took the punishment that you deserved. His dead body was placed into a a, a grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And that solidifies your salvation. For he is the first fruit of resurrection. And what happened to him will happen to you one day. For even though your body will decay, and even though you will come to a funeral for yourself, and though your body will be laid into the ground, there's coming a day when Jesus will raise all the redeemed. Because he's the first fruit of resurrection. The only way that we have life, the only way that we have salvation is by lifting our gaze and seeing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I get to the end of John chapter 3 and I wonder to myself, um, did Nicodemus become a Christ follower? You read the end of John chapter 3 and you're not given the answer. It doesn't tell us, yes, he became a Christian or no, he rejected the gospel and remained condemned. We don't know the answer. We don't know. Now, John does give us two other snapshots of Nicodemus. One is in John chapter 7, verse 50. It's there that the Pharisees were talking about Jesus. Some soldiers had come back, and and the Pharisees asked the soldiers, why didn't you apprehend Jesus? (laughs) Well, he speaks like nobody's business. I mean, he talks like, well, none of you talk. I mean, he, he speaks with authority. They began to ridicule those soldiers. And it's Nicodemus who speaks up. And it's almost as if Nicodemus comes to the defense of Jesus. Nicodemus is then ridiculed by his pharisaical friends. And I'll tell you this much. I don't know if Nicodemus became a believer in that moment, but you show me a guy who will stand up for Jesus around his friends. You show me a guy who will stand up and defend Jesus even in the heat of ridicule from his own peers. And I'll show you somebody that's probably a Jesus follower. It's cinched for me in John chapter 19. For at the end of the gospel, we are told that after the crucifixion of Jesus, 
the dead body was given to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And accompanying Joseph of Arimathea was the man named Nicodemus. And John describes him in John chapter 19 as the one who came to Jesus under the cover of night. And Nicodemus brought with him 75 pounds of myrrh to properly anoint the body of Jesus. Now, once again, you show me somebody who will stand up to ridicule defending Jesus amongst his friends, and that same person will also give of his own wallet to pay for something for Jesus? I'll show you somebody who probably knows the Lord. I mean, you show me somebody who will defend Jesus and also uh, fund Jesus' work, then I'll show you somebody who really loves Jesus. I don't know by his lips, but I know by his lifestyle that Nicodemus became a believer. Because once again, we are called to be fruit inspectors. We just examine the fruit of people. And if you look at what's revealed for us in Scripture of Nicodemus, it would appear by him defending Jesus in front of his friends, by giving of his own money so that Jesus could be properly buried, you would think that Nicodemus came to the point of being a believer. I don't know that for sure. I can't speak of it for certain. But I just got a holy hunch. I think that Nicodemus understood he needed to be born again. Friend, um, this morning, I wonder, are you amazed at God's passion for you? Are you amazed at the depth of love that God has for you as sin-sick as you are? Are you aware of God's purpose? That God sent Jesus to save you to save you from condemnation, to save you from eternal separation. He sent Jesus to save you from the very wrath of God. Are you aware of that? You also understand that the only way that a sinner is saved is by God's plan of belief in the name of God's one and only Son. So if you don't know Jesus personally today, I encourage you, to invite Jesus into your life. We're going to sing a song. I invite you to come. Take one of the ministers by the hand and say, Pastor, I need a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Oh, but probably many of you, you're already Christians. So if you are part of the redeemed, my second question to you is, who's your one? Who's the one person that you're close to who's not close to God? Who's one person you know who doesn't know the Lord? Today I'm asking the Father to burden your heart with that person. Write their name down on that card. Tear off along the perforated edge. Bring that short section of the card laid here at the altar. Pray for that person. Then go back to your seat, take the bookmark, and over the next 30 days you pray for them by name as you walk through that scripture study together. As you walk through the scripture uh, that's listed there on the bookmark. And then for the 30 days and beyond the 30 days, you look for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. Because we know this is the only way for sinners to be saved. If somebody didn't love me, I wouldn't be standing here today. If somebody hadn't told me, I wouldn't be saved. If somebody had not taken the time to share with me the good news of the gospel... I promise you, we would not have been together for the last six years. So who does God burden on your heart? I don't know about you, but when I think about this, who's your one? 
I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful is God's amazing love for me. And not just for me, but for you. And for all the Nicodemuses of your life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, we pray that you'll move in our midst, burden upon our hearts the individual that you want us to identify and pray for and share the gospel with over the next 30 days and beyond. And, oh, Father, by your tender grace and mercy, I pray that you will open up their eyes unto your salvation. Lord, stir the waters of baptism in this church and in other churches because the efforts of your church as we go out and share. Lord, we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.